Have you ever noticed in difficult times that some people wither away and other people rise? That some people go for cover (laughs) and other people emerge? That some people are using every bit of strength they've got to just survive and other people thrive? Today, we're going to learn, no matter what life throws at you, the secret to thrive. We're going to see that Peter's goal for these people that he's writing to that are facing life-threatening struggles in the name of Jesus. Peter's writing to them to say, no matter what happens, you can live the life that God called you to live. You can fulfill your mission. You can find blessing and joy in the journey. There's this uh, story that I came across of um, a man named Martin Reinkert. He was a minister in the little town of Eilenburg, Germany, almost 350 years ago. He was the son of a poor coppersmith, but somehow he managed to work his way through an education. And finally, in the year 1617, he was offered the post of archdeacon in his hometown parish. A year later, what was come to be known as the Thirty Years' War broke out, and his town was caught right in the middle of it for the duration. In 1637, the massive plague that swept across the continent hit Eilenburg. People died at a rate of 50 a day, and the man called upon to bury most of them was Martin Reinkert. In all, over 8,000 people died in that plague, including Martin's own wife. His labors finally came to an end about 11 years later, just one year after the conclusion of the 30-year war. His ministry spanned 32 years, all but the first and the last overwhelmed by the great conflict that engulfed his town. Tough circumstances in which to be thankful, but it was Martin Reinkert who wrote this hymn. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done, in whom his world rejoices. Here's a man that, although he experienced for his entire ministry, not only personal tragedy, but leading a congregation that experienced constant tragedy, understood that in the midst of that, you can still choose to live. I can't control life circumstances, but I control who I am in them. I can't control my situation, but I can control my response to it. I can't rule the actions of others, but I can rule my own. I can't always control the options that I have, but I certainly control my choices. Winston Churchill was the one who coined the phrase, when you're going through hell, keep going. No matter how dark it is, The sun's going to rise the next day. No matter how difficult life is, the hours are going to happen. You're going to have to eat. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to move forward when you're going through hell. Just keep going. And I think that's what Peter's trying to get at. His first goal is encouragement. His next goal is an exhortation to live anyway. Let's turn to this passage, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. 
But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. And since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God, not in your circumstances, not in life, not in your abilities. They're in God. I think there are four things that people tend to fall into when they wither under difficult circumstances. The first thing is that you start losing focus. You get a little weary, you get a little numb, and you lose the ability to make sharp decisions. Second thing that happens is to lose our sense of identity, our our sense of who we are and the kind of person we want to be. Third, you lose your motivation. I mean, what's the use? Why bother? And fourth, you lose your passion for life. In this passage, Peter gives us the antidote to each of those things. Four ideas to help us maintain our footing through whatever life has. The first thing he says is that the way to keep focus is to remember that it's all in your mind. You are what you think, basically. Paul puts it in Romans 12 too. Let's say this together. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Paul is saying that we have a choice to fit into and respond to life just like everybody around us does. That's the idea of patterns. We all have ways of responding to options, responding to situations and circumstances, responding to people. There are patterns that we all have. And as a culture, there is a commonality to those patterns. As we come to Christ, we recognize that those patterns won't lead us down the path that that God called us to. So we have a choice. We can either continue to fit those patterns or we can change. We can be transformed. How do we do that and where do we do it? We do it here. So it's all in the mind. Peter focuses three ideas about how our mind needs to be set. The first thing he talks about is a disciplined mind. Rather than losing our focus, we need to get focused, maintain our focus. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your mind. If you had the old King James Version, it would have this phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. Even though for us, talking about those sort of private parts is a social taboo, In Scripture and in the biblical days, it was a common metaphor. (laughs) It represents those who pull their tunic up and wrap it around themselves, not only to protect those vital places, but also to free their legs and to have them be unencumbered in order to take action. Peter's saying you have to do that with your mind. You need to be prepared for action. Be focused. The second thing he talks about is a controlled mind. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. The actual Greek there means sober-minded. 
somebody who is not intoxicated. They have clear judgment. Now, that's not just talking about drunkenness. That's not the point here. That's almost the metaphor. The point here is being able to see with clarity the potential outcome of our decisions. Make your decisions not for just the moment, but with the long-term implications in mind. If I do this, how will it impact my marriage, my kids, my friendships, my desire to give glory to God, the plans that I believe God's called me to? That's what sober-minded is. I I need to not just be going for the short-term gratification, whatever will give me immediate relief. That'll lead me down a different path. If I'm just looking for instant relief, I'm going to make decisions that keep me from finishing the course well. Let me show you James chapter 1 just real quick. Look at it. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Our circumstances aren't what tempt us to make sinful choices. Many of us take the opportunity when life gets tough to fulfill some of those dark passions, and we blame it on the circumstances of life. We step back from God. We go for the short-term fulfillment. Many people who struggle with various addictions will find that the higher the intensity of conflict, the stronger the temptation is. We want to blame it on the circumstances. James is saying it's not the circumstances. It's really just your own desires that lead you down that path. Your desires that are looking for immediate gratification, that's where sin, evil choices come from. And the long-term impact is death. That's sobering. But it's important for all of us to recognize that we could all easily take that path when we're discouraged, and it would be devastating. Peter says, think soberly. Choose a different path. And that's why the third step. The third thing he talks about is having an optimistic mind. Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you When Jesus Christ is revealed, we need to set our hope fully. The word fully is teleos, and it means without wavering. And Peter is saying, you need to focus beyond your present circumstances, not just sober-minded in terms of this life, but you need to have an eternal focus, and it needs to be unwavering. But that eternal folk is always an optimistic one. Right? Remember from last week, he has just spent several verses telling us that we can still have an inexpressible and glorious joy because nothing that life throws at you can take away what God has done in you and for you and that is waiting in heaven for you. Keep your mind focused on that hope. There will be a glorious appearing of Christ. Grace will be experienced in full when I'm finally and forever with Christ. Against the tendency in hard times to lose our focus, remember, it's all in your mind. It's all about what happens here. The second part is to lose our sense of identity, right? Our our sense of who we are. Peter addresses that by reminding us that it's not just all in your mind, it's all in the family, 
Remember what he says when he refers to the people he's writing to in the first verse? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in this world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, but you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. It's very important that we don't allow circumstances to break down our sense of personal identity because as followers of Jesus, we are children of God. That's what Peter's getting at here. He says, you need to conduct yourselves like children who want to be obedient to their parent. Let that be the motivation to make the right choices. As obedient children, as he who called you is holy... Be holy in all you do. Two thoughts come to my mind about this. First of all, we should always want to please Daddy. Perhaps your father wasn't the influential person in your family, but you could think of somebody who was your primary parent figure, and their relationship with you was the type that you just really wanted to make them proud. We should never lose that focus with our Heavenly Father. We want to make Dad happy. And then second... We want to grow up to be just like him, as he who called you is holy. Be holy. No matter how dark the circumstances are, don't lose your sense of identity, who you are in Christ. Aspire to please your heavenly Father. The third area that we struggle with, as we talked about, is losing our motivation, right? What's the use? Things aren't going to improve. That's a hard thing to deal with. What should motivate us to do the right thing? I can think of a lot of things. One of the things Peter lands on is this thought. It's not only all in in the mind and all in the family. (laughs) It's all in the record. There's something to be motivated about when we realize that every idle choice and thought is watched and known and matters in some way. That's what he's getting at when we look at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, this is one of those passages that I think in today's day and age, your average pastor will look at and say, I'd really like to not preach on that one. doesn't necessarily sound on its own merit to be very encouraging. And we're in a mindset where we have to always be uplifting and encouraging. And we don't want to be one of those browbeating pastors. The fact is, Scripture speaks clearly that while we are the children of God and we will never face judgment in terms of our eternal destiny, we are responsible for the life that we live and we will answer to our Father for everything that we do. It's a continuation, first of all, of the family ideas. If you address his Father, the one that's going to come back and check up on you, going to look for how you did as part of the family, then you need to be careful. You need to be very careful about the decisions you made because you're not just making them for yourselves. You're making them as part of a family in the name of that family, and you'll need to answer for it. That's the idea. I can think of situations where, as kids, we were trusted to be alone in the house. There were five of us, and my brother in particular was very mischievous, and he was two years older than me and tended to pull me into all kinds of trouble. I was the good one. You, 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 you know that, right? Okay. 
inevitably there would be this moment where we would look at the clock or we would hear the gravel stones in the church parking lot because we lived in the parsonage next door to the church. We'd hear the old family station wagon coming through and then suddenly it would hit us. Dad's home! And there would be that scurrying to cover up what we had done and then dad would walk in. Another thing I remember is my brother and I shared a bedroom there were twin beds, and we would goof off, you know, all night. We had a lot of fun. Dad would yell up, go to sleep. And we'd say, okay, Dad. Then we'd get going, and we'd get laughing. And then we'd hear these ankles cracking coming up the wooden staircase in the old parsonage. Crack, 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 crack. Dad's coming. Rich and I would quickly throw our heads into our pillows and pretend to be asleep. I remember my brother even trying to snore. And then there'd be a hand wadding my brother's behind, and sometimes mine. At some point, I figured it out. What I really want when my mom and dad come back is to hear them say, he did well. That's what Peter's getting at here. It's not a brow beating. It's not this, this thought of eternal condemnation. We already know, according to Romans, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but there is the reward We aspire to live our lives in such a way that the name of Christ has been made much of, not diminished by the choices that we make. Yesterday, I watched a Robin Williams movie called Final Cut. It's about this near future world where parents can choose to implant into their child while still in utero a mechanism that will record every experience of their life from birth to death. And then there were those known as the cutters whose job was to take all of that and to shape it into an hour and 40 remembering service where people came and literally watched this person's experience of life from birth to death through their own eyes. And the movie reveals some very dark secrets that were known by these cutters. Parents could tell children that they had done this once the children reached 21. Once these young adults learned that everything was being recorded, they had this remarkable transformation of their lives from irresponsible youth involved in all sorts of dark things to suddenly being model citizens because somebody was going to see it all. Isn't that really what Peter's saying here? Somebody sees it all. And that ought to matter. It's your heavenly father, and you're going to stand before his son and answer for how well you represented the family name. That's pretty good motivation for living and making the right choices. It's all in your mind. We don't have to lose focus. It's all in the family. We don't have to lose our sense of personal identity that often happens in crisis. It's all in the record. We certainly shouldn't lose our motivation. And then the final thing that happens to us when we're in hard times, the final thing that we fall into is that we lose our passion and perhaps our faith. Peter addresses that also by reminding us that it's all for love. Everything that we're doing is out of God's love and the resulting love that we are to have for him. The best motivation to live a holy life is the cross of Christ.
And that's what Peter's getting at here as we continue in verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. The cross of Christ, the love of God poured out through that towards us is the cause of our passion to continue on course, to live the life that God called us to. There's two things that rise, at least for me, as I think about this motivation that Peter's putting in front of us. One thing he's saying is, remember who you once were. He reminds them of the empty way of life that was theirs before the grace of God came through the cross of Jesus. Remember what that was like. Because that's where the downslope of losing our focus and losing our identity and losing our motivation and losing our passion, that's where that's taking us. It's taking us backwards, not forward. It's withering us instead of growing us and helping us flourish and thrive. Remember that life. Look at it and remind yourself we don't want to go there ever again. And then secondly, remember what it costs to give you the new life that is yours. The precious, the inestimable worth that is in the blood of Jesus Christ. What great motivation for us. It's interesting. Peter is just so focused on helping these people because he wants to remind them that the joy is there to be found and the life that God called you to is untouched by life circumstances. It's only touched by them when you let it in. Stay the course. For some of us, we've stepped off the course Hardship has caused us to drift back into that old pattern, that old way of life. We have lost our focus. This teaching reminds us that we can get back on focus. We can start moving forward again. We can keep living the life that is worthy of God, and that brings worth and fulfillment to us. I want to just read two short stories as we wrap up here. Let me read them for you. Story number one. Many years ago, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago, enmeshing the Windy City and everything from bootlegged booze and prostitution to murder. Capone had a lawyer nicknamed Easy Eddie. He was his lawyer for a good reason. Eddie was very good at what he did. In fact, Eddie's skill at legal maneuvering kept Big Al out of jail for a very long time. To show his appreciation, Capone paid him very well. Not only was the money big, but also Eddie got special dividends. For instance, he and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live-in help and all the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled an entire Chicago city block. Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob and for most of his life gave very little consideration to the atrocities that went on around him. Eddie did have one soft spot, however. He had a son that he loved dearly. Eddie saw to it that his young son had clothes, cards, and a good education. Nothing was withheld. Price was no object. 
But despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. Eddie wanted his son to be a better man than he was, yet with all his wealth and influence, there were two things he couldn't give his son in his current way of living. He couldn't pass on a good name, and he couldn't show a good example. It was at that time that Eddie had a conversion back to his Christian faith. He reached a difficult decision. And Easy Eddie, wanting to rectify wrongs he had done, decided he would go to the authorities and tell the truth about Al Scarface Capone, clean up his tarnished name, and finally offer his son some semblance of integrity. To do this, he would have to testify against the mob, and he knew that the cost would be great. But he testified. And within the year, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. But in his eyes, he had given his son the greatest gift he had to offer him at the greatest price he would ever pay. Police removed from his pockets on the day he was killed a rosary, a crucifix, a religious medallion, and a poem clipped from a magazine. The poem read, The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. Now is the only time you own. Live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in time, for the clock may soon be still. Story number two. World War II produced many heroes. One such man was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. One day his entire squadron was sent on a mission After he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation and headed back to the fleet. As he was returning to the mother ship, he saw something that turned his blood cold. A squadron of Japanese aircraft were speeding their way toward the American fleet. The American fighters were gone on a sortie, and the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron and bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he get back to the fleet in time to warn of the approaching danger. There was only one thing to do. He must somehow divert them from the fleet. Laying aside all thoughts of personal safety, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes. Wing-mounted 50 calibers blazed as he charged in, attacking one surprised enemy plane and then another. Butch wove in and out of the now broken formation and fired at as many planes as possible until all his ammunition was finally spent. Undaunted, he continued the assault. He dove at the planes trying to clip a wing or the tail in hopes of damaging as many enemy planes as possible and rendering them unfit to fly. Finally, The exasperated Japanese squadron took off in a different direction. Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and related the event surrounding his return. The film from the gun camera mounted on his plane confirmed the entire tale. It showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He had, in fact, destroyed five enemy aircraft. This took place on February 20th, 1942, and for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace of World War II and the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. A year later, 
Butch was killed in aerial combat at the age of 29. His hometown would not allow the memory of this World War II hero to fade, and today, O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named in tribute to the courage of this great man. So the next time you find yourself at O'Hare International, give some thought to visiting Butch's Memorial, located between Terminals 1 and 2. So what do these two stories have to do with each other? Butch O'Hare was Eddie Easy's son. See, the life that we live has powerful impact on those that come after us. We're not just influencing our children. We're influencing people around us at all times. Whether you're walking through paradise or trotting through hell, keep going. Keep living the life that God called you to. You can do it. It's all in your mind. Be sober and ready and active. It's all in the family. Live a life that makes your dad proud. It's all in the record. Someday we're going to have to answer for it. Stay motivated. And it's all about love. No matter what happens, you can live the life that God called you to live. You can fulfill your mission. You can find blessing and joy in the journey. Keep going.